And will you turn in your Bibles to Psalm number 42, Psalm 42. And the guys have some Bibles. They're going to make their way to the back. If you need a Bible, just uh, get their attention, and they will give you one of those. Keep it as our gift to you, and bring it back with you each Lord's Day as we look at the Word of God together, Psalm 42 today. And today's message in our series in the book of Psalms represents a, a significant transition point because this psalm begins a new book within the overall book. Now, some of you may remember when we started this series back in July, in that introductory message, I said the 150 individual psalms are part of five separate collections that were brought together in the Psalter that we now have. And the five books within the one book of psalms are these. You have books one through five, and book one goes through Psalm 41, and then book two starts with the psalm we're going to consider today, Psalm 42. Psalm 42 begins book number two. Now what's important about there being five books in the book of Psalms is that they appear to have been deliberately arranged to parallel the first five books of the Bible, sometimes called the books of the law, or the Hebrew word for law, Torah. The editors of the book of Psalms organized the collection into five books, almost certainly to display a parallel with the five books of the law as a way to say that these five books of songs are the Torah of God with just as important life-regulating significance as the law itself. It's no surprise then that this new book focuses at the very beginning on what we feel. Because the Psalms, God's inspired collection of poetic song, are designed to shape our affections just as the law of God is designed to shape our thinking. The book of Psalms is designed to give a picture, to shape our imaginations toward how to achieve what it calls in the very first Psalm, that Psalm that introduces the entire book of 150, it's called the blessed life. When it says in the very first verse, of the entire book of Psalms. Blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. Now notice, it's the one who delights in the law of God. The author of the helpful book on the Psalms called Musing on God's Music, which I mentioned a few weeks ago and we have in our resource center, says, the truly blessed person, according to Psalm 1, will shape his imagination by the Torah. Our image of the good life will be shaped by God's image of the good life. Notice that it doesn't describe blessedness to us in strict propositional doctrinal terms. It uses an image to shape our imagination of what that would be like. True blessedness, Psalm 1 says, is like a, a tree planted by an abundant source of nourishment. The third verse in that first psalm says, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. But if our thinking and affections are not centered on God and on the kind of life he tells us to pursue, the benefits of which he wants for us, then we will find ourselves as the psalmist did in Psalm 42. 
Notice verse 5. He is downcast. He is disturbed internally. Those same two words are repeated again in verse 11 and again in the next psalm, Psalm 43 and verse 5. Now the two are related, our thinking and our affections. Our affections shape our imagination of what is good and blessed, therefore what we spend time thinking about. If your imaginations have been captured by images of a so-called good life that's different from what God describes, then our hearts, friends, are directing us to think in ways that move us from Him rather than toward Him. If you buy what the culture promotes, then you will be dissatisfied with your life. If you look at images in the media and allow that to shape your view of the good, the blessed life, you will find yourself at best indifferent to what the Lord, the Lord presents as best. So I ask you, how are you feeling today? What is shaping the way you look at your life and your world? This morning we are going to see some of the causes of the spiritual malaise in which too many of us find ourselves, but thankfully we'll also be pointed to the solution. So let's bow now and ask God to help us as we look at his word. Father, we thank you for the blessing of being here already, to have worshipped you in the forms that we have, that you have described as your desire for worship, that we've been able to sing praise to you to give back to you, to give our prayers to you, to read your word publicly. Now, Lord, we want to worship you through the act of proclamation and attentive listening and application to our lives. Help us to do all of those now to bring glory to you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, you should have received an outline when you came in today as each week. And if you look at the top of that outline, it says we're dealing with two psalms both 42 and 43. And the reason for that is because it appears that originally they were together rather than separate. Notice at the top of Psalm 42, there's a superscription. It says, for the director of music. But if you look at the top of Psalm 43, there is no, there is no title. When you get to Psalm 44, you have a superscription again. So that's one reason that it's believed these were originally together in addition, they deal with the same subject matter, and in fact, many manuscripts have these two psalms as one. And so I say in your outline, first of all, that in the ups and downs of life, we must identify the causes of spiritual depression. Now, the word depression is used in the outline, but it's modified to spiritual depression to distinguish between situations or sudden episodes that have a direct physical effect. Things like postpartum depression or traumatic events that can result in PTSD, for example. These and others like them happen to us and there's an involuntary physical response. Spiritual depression occurs when the things that happen to us or even that we've done ourselves are not traumatic or sudden, but they are circumstances that allow us time to reflect and think and mull them over. And it's important that we do all of those well. Forms of depression can be brought on physically or spiritually because we have both material and immaterial parts to who we are. We are both physical and spiritual. 
This means that, contrary to the naturalistic worldview with which we're inundated, our physical brains are not the sum total of our thinking. Biblically, your brain is not equivalent to your mind. The mind in the Bible has both a physical component, yes, the brain, but also a spiritual component. We think spiritually, and it affects us physically. If we think in wrong patterns, it can and does wire us to think in those patterns. And that wiring is physical. Or we may have uh, acquired a physical problem in our thinking genetically. We may have been born with wiring that affects our thinking in adverse ways. This shows up in scans of brain activity, and medication can and does help them. And so as I go through what we're calling here spiritual depression, please understand if you have medication for depression or other struggles, please keep taking it. For example, some take medications to correct or balance effects of not eating right because it's caused other physical problems. Others take medications for damage done after many years of abusing alcohol. So even if the reason that I take medication is because of something I did, and it's certainly not always due to something we did, even then I still need the medication and I need to pick up and go from there. So at the outset, as we look at this important issue, I counsel you not to spend time thinking so much about how you got where you are, as that may, in fact, if you're not careful, contribute further to your depression. The truth is, in a fallen world, we suffer the effects of the fall, and sickness of all types is part of that. But I want us to recognize, more important, what God wants us to recognize is that our thinking has Two components, not just one, it is both spiritual and material. And how we react to adverse situations is a major contributor to our spiritual well-being. And the psalmist describes several such situations. The first I have for you in your outline is isolation from God's people. Verse 1 of Psalm 42 as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? Now the writer of this psalm is far away from Jerusalem. We're not told why he's away, but verse 6 that tells us that when he writes, He's located at, verse 6, the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Mount Hermon, that's a great mountain in a range of mountains in the north of Israel on the border of Syria, where the headwaters for the Jordan River spring up. Mount Mizar means little mountain, referring to a, a smaller hill in that range. This area in your New Testament is Caesarea Philippi. And what all this means is that he's far away from the center of worship in Jerusalem. And he longs to be there. Now he knows that God is everywhere. After all, he prays to God in these psalms. But he wants to be where God is worshipped in the assembly of his people, not just alone. The end of verse 4 speaks of his worship being rendered, notice the end of verse 4, among the festive throng. Now, the late pastor and theologian James Montgomery Boyce delineated these items that I have in your outline. And he says of this one, 
Some have suggested that if a traveler or captive, which the author could be, were headed east in the direction of Babylon, this is the last point from which he might glimpse the familiar mountains of his homeland to the south. And in this case, the psalmist's melancholy is born of something good, namely his deep spiritual desire to be in the special presence of God in the company of God's people. For him, just as water is the source of life and vitality for the animal, the deer, God is the source of spiritual life. His mind goes in that direction because he's near water, apparently. Verse 6 describes where he is located, and verse 7 says it includes waterfalls. In another psalm, David, who wrote it, is in a desert which has no water, but he says this, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. So notice this common desire to be with God and his people. That's a desire that far too many of us take for granted as evidenced by the I can sort of take it or leave it each Sunday, each Lord's Day, as to whether I am in fact gathered with God's people. Now, whenever something like this comes up in Scripture, as it has here, and then I make note of it, as I have now, then I am pretty much preaching to the choir because y'all are here, right? So the, the conundrum is that, generally speaking, the people who need to hear what I just said are by its very nature not here, right? So if you know a brother or sister like that, you know, it is part of our job as overseers of the church to reach out to people, to see if everything's okay spiritually. We haven't seen you. We do that. But, you know, you can do that as well, and I would urge you to do that. Hey, I miss you when I, when I don't see you. Is there anything that I, can, that I can do for you just to urge people in the right direction? But those who cherish being together in God's presence as we are in these sacred moments, we should be down when we cannot be in the company of God's people in worship. And that's what's happening with the psalmist here. Some of you are familiar with the old hymn, Blessed Be the Tie That Binds. It says, when we asunder part, it gives us inward pain. But we shall still be joined in heart until we meet again. One occasion for spiritual depression is, or at least should be, if we're isolated from God's people. That happened during the whole COVID thing. And there was a prolonged period where we couldn't gather as we normally do. And that should have had the effect on us to say, Lord, we long for the time when we can come back together. And thankfully, he's allowed that to happen. So one occasion for spiritual depression is or at least should be isolation from God's people. Another is, I say in the outline, opposition from the world. Verse 3. My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me all day long, where is your God? Now in those days, there was no atheism to speak of. There was, what there was was polytheism. <laughs> there were many gods, and there were rival and would-be gods 
who were judged by their worth based on what they did. And there were gods in the polytheistic nations around Israel for everything. And they are now saying to the psalmist, you believe in only one God who does all things, so where is he in your distress? Where is he in your longing to return? Where is he to save you? Probably these are the same people who in verse 2 were taunting, where is your God? These are those who, against whom the psalmist is asking God for vindication. If you look at Psalm 43 and verse 1. Vindicate me, my God, and plead my cause against an unfaithful nation. Rescue me from those who are deceitful and wicked. So opposition. And throughout the Psalms, you find that the people of God always have some form of opposition from the people who are not belonging to God. The very first Psalm speaks of the way of the wicked and warns against following that. And then the second Psalm, and those two together introduce the entire book of Psalms, talks about the opposition of people to God's anointed one, his Messiah. Well, if they... If they if they persecuted him, Jesus said, they will persecute you as, as well. And so, friends, contrary to the illusion that hipster Christianity has created in our churches, you know what I mean by that? Just We just got to learn to be a hip church. I mean, if we could just be hip, if we could be with it, then we would be popular and people would like us more. The truth of the matter is, if you stand for God, if you speak and you live God's truth, then the follower of Jesus, followers of Jesus have always been and always will be in the minority. Jesus warned as much. Paul, the apostle, found that. Almost all of those who are listed in faith's hall of fame in Hebrews 11 found that. It simply goes with the territory of authentic Christianity. But nevertheless, it's hard and it presents a temptation to spiritual depression when we're opposed by co-workers, neighbors, former friends, even family. So we can be spiritually depressed when we're isolated from God's people, when we're opposed by the world, and also by memories of the past. Verse 4, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the Mighty One, with shouts of joy and praise among that festive throng. Notice that his greatest joy is again in congregational worship. Because of the exile that he's in, he can't do what he used to do with the people with whom he used to do it. Our greatest joys, when they're gone, can bring our greatest sorrows. We say or think, remember what it was like when we used to and then fill in the blank. Looking at old pictures can conjure up such memories. I remember just four years ago that Kim and I dealt with a fairly intense bout of past memories when both of our girls got married that same summer. We've reminisced while we looked over old picture albums and we rehearsed the many good times that God had given to our family. The memories that trigger the spiritual depression may be fond as they were with the psalmist, or they may be memories that we would like to forget, but we simply cannot shake. And there are things that come to our mind regularly, or there are things that trigger the
those, those thoughts. You hear a song and it triggers something that happened 20 years earlier. You're in a circumstance and you feel like it's deja vu. I've been here before. It brings back those, those memories. And I've counseled people over the years who have gone through things that they're trying to put out of their minds as, as best they can. And I've often used this illustration of a channel selector for the television, the remote, and how you have a last channel or a previous channel on it. And I suggest that, and I suggest you do this, by the way, when you're wa actually watching TV. Like you have a go-to previous channel set that when that commercial comes on that is advertising things that you don't need to see or hear or images that you don't need to see or hear as a Christian, then hit the previous channel and go to a safe place. <laughs> and I suggest that people do that mentally as well, that you have a channel to go to that's going to be your place when that thing comes up. And you go there and you think about God's good, goodness to you in some way. Be pre-programmed -pro mentally to go to that place. And so isolation from God's people, opposition by the world, memories of the past, and circumstances of the present. Verse 7. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. The reasons that he's been taken away from Jerusalem must have included some kind of trial such that he looks at the waterfalls and the currents, things that might have been cause for him to praise God for the beauty, but instead they filled him with pain as though it reminds him that the hits just keep on coming. One setback is hard to take. But many of us can testify that sometimes they come in waves. And in fact, there's yet another dimension to his spiritual depression. He's out of work. <laughs> and so he feels useless. Now, why do I say he's out of work? Well, notice that superscription again at the top of Psalm 42. It says, for the director of music, a maskeel, we saw last week, that means instruction, but then it says, of the sons of Korah. So who is Korah? Who are his sons, and what do they have to do with writing psalms? We're introduced to Korah due to a rebellion he led against Moses. The Bible says Korah, along with 250 Israelite men, came as a group to oppose Moses. Fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men. So Moses is the leader. They oppose Moses, and they're consumed. Here's your take-home truth. Don't mess with a pastor, okay? Now, presumably, Korah's adult sons would have followed their father in this, but for some reason, they were spared, and perhaps in gratitude to God, they dedicated themselves to leading music in praise to God in the tabernacle and then later in the temple, because the Bible says later the descendants of Kohath, including his son Korah, the descendants of Elkanah, and the descendants of Merari, 
These are the men David put in charge of the music in the house of the Lord. They ministered with music before the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, until Solomon built the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem. So the one who wrote this psalm was employed in the service of the worship of the Lord, but now he's unable to do that. So not only is he away from Jerusalem and the company of God's people, he's unemployed. So isolation, opposition, memory, circumstances, and distance from God. With all of that, exiled from home, taunts by unbelievers, memories of days that seem to be gone forever, problems, compounding problems, the psalmist feels abandoned by God. Verse 9, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must my, I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? And so he's saying all of this is going on, and God is not helping. At least not, at least not now. And very often we want the help as we define the help. Now, our daughter Annie, of our two daughters, she is the one who is literal. She takes after her mother in this. That when you say something to her, there's no nuance with it. It's hard to talk in figurative terms. Everything is, is literal. And we sought to teach the girls from an early age that when you need help, go to God first. Ask God. And so Annie learned to pray to God, go to God for help. And so on one occasion she came to me and she's frustrated and I said, hey, go to, go to God, ask God for help. She says, I do, he doesn't help. I said, he doesn't. She said, no. She said, I was trying to get a jar open the other day and I asked God to help me and he didn't. So I had to bring Annie back to faith <laughs> from, that, from that point on. But you see, sometimes just as a child, we say, I define how the help will come and when it will come. And when that fails to materialize, then there is this complaint against God. Where are you? Why aren't you acting in my behalf? And in addi addition to all of that, this psalm does not, of course, exhaust all of the occasions for spiritual depression. There are, as I say in the outline, many others. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who went to be with the Lord in 1981, he was a British pastor, he was a well-known pastor of a well-known church, he was a great preacher, he stood in the face of opposition, he is a model to follow in all respects. And I thank God for his life and, and memory. He wrote a book called Spiritual Depression. We have some copies of that in our resource center. He was a medical doctor before he became a preacher. And he lists a number of others. He says temperament, physical conditions, let down after great blessing, attacks of Satan to take our eyes off God, simple unbelief, great disappointments in life, personal failure, the burden of getting old. And of course the list can go on, right? But here's the good news. Whatever reasons you have for being down, dear friends, there are many. You have much greater reason for joy and hope. The causes of spiritual depression are many, 
But what is the cure? I invite you to turn to the back of your outline where we say that in the ups and downs of life, we must identify the causes of spiritual depression, but also the cure. The world turns to false cures, to the escapism of entertainment, to frequent vacations. Divorce will fix my, my problems. Some pop pills. Some are, those pills are habit-forming drugs. Mallory on the old show Family Ties, some of you remember that show? Mar Mallory, the ditzy sister. She said, when I get depressed, I go shopping. And we have all kinds of things, diversions like that, that are our so-called cures. But these are ineffective, of course. At best, they can lift our spirits for a time. And so if your family is having problems, you come up with a, a solution, you say, you know what we need? We just need a fantastic vacation. So we are going to plan for the next year for this vacation. We're going to save for this vacation. We're going to go on it. It's going to be a bonding time. And we're all going to come out of that all loving each other the way we should. But you know, there are things outside of your control for that vacation, aren't there? What's the weather going to be like when you get there? How crowded is it going to be? How much frustration are you going to experience when one of you wants to do one thing, others want to do something else? I remember being at Disney World with our girls one year. We went three times as, as a family. And in the run-up to those all the time, I said, hey, girls, it might rain the entire week we're there. I'm just preparing us, but we're going to have a great time together. So I wanted to prepare them for that. Th this is not going to be the panacea. This is, doesn't make our family. Okay, But we went, one year we were there, we were eating, and there was a family near us, and the mother just had a complete, complete meltdown. Just completely lost it. Now, I don't know everything that was going on there, obviously, other than she's losing it with her family. My, I imagine that this was supposed to be the thing that brought everything together, and it didn't work out that way. And so what do we do to imp implement the cure and real cures rather than these ineffective cures? The first is this, preach to yourself. Notice that the psalmist is talking to himself. When he says in verse 5 of Psalm 42 and verse 11 and also verse 5 of Psalm 43, why my soul are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? He's talking to himself. Why are you such a mess, soul? Why are you so downcast? Why are you so disturbed? Now, we all do that. We all think about ourselves, think about what's happening in our lives. We talk to ourselves without moving our lips. Our minds are ever active. And what we think about and how we think about it will determine our spiritual well-being. Many years ago, I read a book called The Trauma of Transparency. The subtitle is A Biblical Approach to Interpersonal Communication. Unfortunately, 
out of print, but you can get used copies on, on Amazon. It's easy to read. I found it very insightful. The author says that we tend to do two things with our thoughts. We either hide them or we hurl them. What we hide may evaporate, he says, but it also may ferment. And so he gives these little vignettes of, to people. He's got one called Gloomy Gloria. And Gloomy Gloria is a single young adult, and she's just got through looking at her friend's new diamond and hearing all about the wedding plan. She wants to marry, but right now she hardly even dates. In scene one, she's processing this data. But, you know, Gloria's thinking about her stuff. She's ruminating about all of this, and she's looking in scene two in the mirror. And she's thinking of herself as not very attractive, and she'll probably never marry, and she's feeding on such distraught data, this fermentation process continues. In scene three, she's sitting alone in her apartment, and she's thinking, I'm doomed to celibacy. Nobody really likes me. I'm a failure. I'll never be happy. She is not meditating with God. She's commiserating with herself. She's not gaining perspective. She's losing it. As someone has aptly said, when you have yourself for a doctor, you have a fool for a patient. <laughs> she needs to tell herself what God thinks about her and the nature of his plan for her. And that is often the way of life for us. Problems attack us, invade us, and then proceed to occupy larger and larger areas of our mental and emotional territory. Many issues we choose to hide refuse to lie dormant. They roar and roam around and claw at your soul. That is what can happen when we harbor unconfessed sin. It infiltrates every nook and cranny of our lives, as we saw when we looked at Psalm 32 in the life of David. Anger, if not processed quickly and completely, can go through the same fermentation process, resulting in all kinds of internal and external problems. And so Scripture wisely instructs us to not let the sun go down on our anger. Take care of it quickly. And so he has this other vignette of irate Ira. He's even-tempered. He's always mad. <laughs> well, not always, but he is right now. In scene one, he's pretty peeved about the neighbor's kids and their dog. In the next scene, he's really stewing carrying on militant meditation. In the final scene, he loses what little cool he has left, comes unglued, and explodes. In more ways than one, Ira has blown it. This drama may have taken just a few minutes, or it may have taken a few months. Imperfect neighbors don't have perfect kids or dogs. Their dogs don't bark perfectly. Their kids don't act perfectly. Ira needs to remind himself of this. One of the fruits of the Spirit is patience. Another is long-suffering, kindness, gentleness, and dare we mention it, self-control. And Ira needs to meditate on these things. You see, friends, we are all, always, thinking all the time. What we think about and how we think about it will determine our spiritual well-being. What we hide may evaporate, but it may ferment as it often does so we need to learn to talk to ourselves rather than listen to yourself arrest the thoughts that you continually listen to and talk to yourself with truth from god's word 
your mind must speak to your emotions rather than your emotions speaking to your mind. And so the cure involves reminding yourself of the gospel. Reminding yourself of what you were. Rehearse the position that you now have in Christ. Reimagine what it will be like to be with Christ and rid of all the effects of fallenness. Preach to yourself. And then, practice what you preach. Verse 5 in both of these psalms says, put your hope in God. The second step in the battle against spiritual depression follows from the act of addressing ourselves in this manner, of preaching to ourselves rather than listening to ourselves. It's, a cha- it's, it's to challenge oneself to do what the spiritual self knows should be done. Put your hope in, in God. There can be no lasting hope in anything else in this sinful, failing world. And there never has been, there never will be. And besides, the believer has put his or her trust in God in past days. We can do so again. It's a mark of simple sanity to do what the psalmist urges should be done here. Preach to yourself. Practice what you preach. And meditate on your preaching. Verse 5 and 11 of Psalm 42, verse 5 of Psalm 43, all of them say, I will yet praise him. To hope in God leads to this final step in the battle against spiritual depression. The reminder, based on the character of God in whom we trust, is that I will yet praise him. Since God has not changed, and he has led us to victories in times past, not least our salvation, he can and will do it again. So instead of looking at the past as something that I've lost, we should look at it as a picture, a forecast of the many good things yet to come. In the words of those great theologians, Fleetwood Mac, why not think about times to come and not about the things that you've done? If your life has been bad to you, just think what tomorrow will do. Don't stop thinking about tomorrow. Now, Fleetwood Mac doesn't base that on the confident assurance of the Word of God, but you can. And then move forward accordingly. Author Scott Annual says the Hebrew word for meditate that's used in Psalm 1, that we delight and meditate does the blessed person in the law of God, that that Hebrew word for meditate used in Psalm 1 literally means vocalize. And so it has the idea of murmuring about something. Sometimes this word is translated to muse on something. What do we do when we muse on something? We allow it to roll around in our mind. We contemplate it from every angle. But even those ways of describing it are insufficient because meditating is more than just something we do with our mind. It's something we do with our heart. To meditate on something, to muse on something, is to allow it to form and shape our heart, our map of the world, our image of the good life. And this is why the Hebrew word is sometimes translated to imagine. And what this means is that meditation is more than just studying scripture. It's more than just thinking about doctrine. Meditation is writing the word of God on the tablet of your heart. Meditation is slow formation. It is, as Paul said in Colossians 3, letting the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. 
And what's particularly instructive about that reference from Colossians 3.16 is what comes next. How do we meditate on God's word? By, here it is again, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. Now notice through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Notice that we've come back to what the psalmist was missing, being with God's people. Together, having our hearts formed by the truth contained in our communal, as a community, praise to God. It's that important. This kind of image-forming meditation on the Torah, the law, is a function of our hearts, our, our imaginations. And it requires not just doctrinal statements, not just the Mosaic Torah, the, Mo the law of Moses. It requires forms of imagination, songs, the Davidic Torah in the Psalms. We muse on the Torah when the Torah takes on the form of music in the Psalms. And this is exactly what the book of Psalms is for. As the five books of Moses are the Torah for the mind, the five books of the Psalms are the Torah for the heart. And so one preacher asked, does medicine such as the psalmist prescribes really help? Does it really affect a cure? The progress achieved by it is evident throughout the Psalms, one Psalm together in the two that we have divided, 42 and 43. He says, look how the thought flows and the mood rises throughout these psalms. At first, the psalmist remembers the former days at the temple and is oppressed by the memory, but then he draws on the memory again, but this time it's to remember God and his goodness. At first, he's troubled by the taunts of enemies who say, where is your God? But then he answers that God is with him in verse 8. In verse 1, God is absent. In verse 9, God is his rock. By the time we come to Psalm 43 and verse 2, God is his stronghold. And he's praying confidently that God will guide him back to the place of worship and the joys of former days. He's moved from lament to a strong, believing prayer. And the same movement carries into the flow of thought into Psalm 43. As his mind goes back to Mount Zion, the holy mountain of verse 3 in that psalm, from which he's been removed. And second, it's to the temple upon Mount Zion, the place where God dwells. Third, it's to the altar of God before the temple in verse 4 of Psalm 43. And finally, it's back to God himself. The psalmist is brought back to Mount Zion, then the temple, then the altar, and then to God in progressive fashion. And friends, that's the way it works for us. Take hold of yourself. Take hold of your mind. Stop listening to yourself and start preaching to yourself from the truth of God's word. Meditate upon the God who is and the God who is good to you. Meditate, think about what he has done in the past and what he has promised for your future. Remind yourself regularly of that. And remember this, that unlike the psalmist, who had a particular locale as the place where God met. There's a special way that God meets with his people when we gather on the Lord's Day. So avail yourself of it every Lord's Day as you have today. But in Jesus Christ now, 
we have access to God every moment of every day as well. And here's what the Bible says. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Made His dwelling, those words made His dwelling is literally He pitched His tent among us. He tabernacled among us. The tabernacle, which later became the temple, is now here in the form of Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 2 says the same thing. In Christ, all the fullness of deity lives tabernacled in bodily form. It means this, I have access to God at all times and He is for us. So here's your take-home truth. We must regularly preach the gospel to ourselves. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you again for the grand privilege of being able to gather before you as your people in these sacred moments. Thank you for this privilege, this means of grace in the lives of your people. I thank you for the brothers and sisters who have come today. And Lord, I pray that we will make effort, real effort, to make every Lord's Day a special day to gather together as the means of grace that you provided. And I pray, Lord, for those who do not, that you will move upon their hearts and allow us access to them to urge them in this important direction. Thank you for giving us this prescription in your word for how to overcome the spiritual malaise that grips all of us from time to time in a fallen world. Thank you for not leaving us to grope in darkness, but giving us the light of your word to guide our path. We give you the praise for this. Help us as we go this week to seek to implement it in our lives. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together for our closing song. As you go, may you show his heart to bless the ones with us, the blind and lost. As you leave, may you be the light of Christ and show our hope is in the cross. May you glow in the love of your Father. Thank you again for joining us this morning at 11.15. We'll meet back in here for our second hour. In the meantime, right outside these doors, we have our time of cafe community with coffees, bagels, and other refreshments. Um, thank you again for coming.